spanning the nerd world and feeding your fandom. It's time for the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Here's your host, James Witham. Hoping that our noise is good noise. It's episode 361 of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. I'm James Witham. So many exciting things to talk about this week and if you haven't seen chaos walking yet or if you're just a fan of the knife of never letting go novel patrick nass going to be joining me this week to talk about bringing that to life on the screen also invincible our interviews are not over for invincible yet zazzy beats and jillian jacobs joining me this week to go to talk about playing adam eve and amber can't wait for and i'll also give you my thoughts on invincible as well going to talk about godzilla versus kong supergirl some very, very interesting nerd news, some stuff maybe that you're bummed out about. Plus, if you haven't heard, Serial Box has become Realm. They're sponsoring the show this week, and I actually have the trailer for Orphan Black, the next chapter coming up. Oh, stick around for that. But first, let's start things off with the big review of the week, at least I think anyway, Godzilla vs. Kong. Spoiler-free thoughts up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Carlos Magno, and you're listening to the Down and the Nerdy Podcast. A heavyweight battle you can't help but be hyped for. It is my spoiler, maybe-ish, review of Godzilla vs. Kong, which is in theaters now and on HBO Max as well. Not going to spoil a ton for this, actually, because I don't really want to give anything away for anybody that hasn't had a chance to see it yet. But i got to say, honestly, this is one of the better versus-type movies that I've seen. I think in a long time. And also what you're doing is you're taking two different movies, two different franchises and putting them together. Right. And one of the things that I really loved is that when you see this happen, sometimes there's a very much forcing the cast together type of vibe to it. Like you're forcing these two different casts of characters to interact with each other and, and kind of combine them. And it doesn't always feel natural. They didn't feel the need to do that at all in this movie. And I thought that that was really, really neat. You don't really see that blending happen in this movie because it wasn't necessary. And that was one of the other things, too, that was good about this movie was that they skipped a lot of stuff that wasn't necessary. As a matter of fact, it's pretty obvious early on that the focus would be on what it should be. And that is the monsters themselves on King Kong and freaking Godzilla. That is one of the things that the Godzilla movies haven't done very well is they have not focused on Godzilla enough, quite frankly. And I do love that King that Kong doesn't take a back seat in this movie either. That was my other worry, was that Kong would just take a back seat because, you know, of, of the Godzilla fandom. And, you know, in theory, Godzilla is the bigger name, I guess. But that was not the case at all. As a matter of fact, I love the sympathetic lean to Kong's story. And I actually think that and maybe this is a little bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen it yet, but maybe you get this impression from the trailers is that I think that painting Godzilla as a little bit of the the villain here actually helps sell the storyline, especially since they, they, they give you this, like I said, really sympathetic story about Kong early on and, and his relationship with, with little Gia, which I, which I really loved in this, in this movie. And, and you get to learn a little bit of a secret about Kong early on. That's kind of connected to her. I, I just loved how they really, really sold that. And I, and I love how Alexander Skargard's character of Nathan Lynn, too, he kind of starts out as he, you know, you feel bad for him at first, then you think he's a jerk, and then he ends up kind of redeeming himself 
a little bit later on. And I thought that that was a really, really cool way to do things too. And the, and again, I'm, and the, one of the things that was also really good is they don't make the rivalry overly complicated. Like you could really, really dig deep and waste a lot of time creating a reason why this is a rivalry. They make it really simple. And, and I won't tell you what it is, but it was a real breath of fresh air. I'm like, Wow, you just cut right to the point there, and it, and it makes sense. You might not like it. You might have wanted more, but what more could you? What what difference would that have made if there was this deep seated meaning as to why Kong and Godzilla are fighting? It's simple. Keep it simple. That that was the other thing this movie did. Is it kept certain things simple? There's a climactic point at the end. I don't want to skip to the end too much, but. There's a climactic point at the end during the battle where I literally said to myself, and, and I'm going to say this as much as I can without spoiling anything. I said to myself in my head, I, I mean, have you tried unplugging it, plugging it back in? And I said that to myself as kind of a joke, right? And then they give this really simple solution to solve a major problem that kind that, that works. And you could and you could have taken one of two perspectives to that you could go really really that's what it took but you could also go huh you know that makes sense I mean it, it's you know that's kind of an interesting way to go about it but it makes sense right and then that just kept to the theme that I had while I'm watching this is I'm like don't overthink it just give us what we want and that's exactly what they were doing and and they did not stray from that there's also a story behind why Godzilla is doing what he's doing. And you could probably imagine what humans would be responsible for that if you know the story as it is. And, and again, it just makes perfect sense. And it also tells you how intuitive Godzilla is, which I think is really, really neat. There's also some really fun parts to this movie with Millie Bobby Brown and Brian Tyree Henry and, and Julian Dennison. And by the way, can I tell you how much I loved that character that Brian Tyree Henry brought to the screen and, and the whole podcast segments thing, which, of course, always near and dear to my heart. But Bernie was one of my favorite characters in this entire movie. And some fans are actually that's one of the beefs about this movie. Some fans are upset about Millie Bobby Brown's role in this movie. It, not everything's going to be 11. OK, the movie's not about her. You love her. I love her, too. Don't get me wrong. The movie's not about. Millie Bobby Brown's character at all. She is a part of it, sure, but this is not a Madison Russell movie. It's called Godzilla versus Kong, not Godzilla versus Kong with Madison Russell. No, no, no. Not about her. Didn't need to focus on her a ton. And they didn't. They focused on her and her part of the story when they needed to. Okay? That's all they did. And you actually find out that, you know, this is one of the maybe a little bit of a spoiler alert. The project is exactly what you hope it is that they're act, that they actually uncover. And I'll go ahead and I'll say it. Yeah, we get Mechagodzilla in this movie. And I got to tell you, they do a great job. I mean, does the does Mechagodzilla look perfect? No. But then you, you, you also understand why Mechagodzilla doesn't look perfect in this movie by, by the way things were were designed and who did it. So, and it also gives you the whole, you know, some things are better left alone theory and how they go about functioning Mechagodzilla. You, you say to yourself, oh, clearly this is a great idea. And this, there's, 
How what could possibly go wrong? And 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 again, that's that's kind of how things go. But the bottom line here is the fight scenes are epic. They don't save them for the end. You actually get a lot of fighting throughout between Godzilla and Kong, which I really, really loved. They don't bog you down with a whole lot of unnecessary plot filler. Maybe we could have gotten a little bit more on this Hollow Earth. I I, I mean, that's, if you're going to gripe about anything, that would probably be it. The CGI wasn't perfect, but again, what CGI is. I do think that they actually got a better look for Kong than they did in Godzilla in this movie. I think Adam Wingard deserves a lot of credit for the pacing, the presentation, and how things were brought out. But just in general, I think that this was a really, really fun movie. I think that they gave us exactly what we wanted without overthinking it. And what more can you really ask for from a movie like this? There's no end credit scene because, I mean, there's some finality here. I'll tell you that much. There is some finality. And there is a... Okay, well, where do we go from here? Aspect of this whole thing. That doesn't mean there's nowhere to go. It's just a, okay, well, where do we go from here type of situation. So, and one more point I want to make about this before I wrap this up is, I don't, I can't remember the last time I watched a movie where everyone that you really hoped would get theirs by the end got it, if you know what I mean. Anybody that you wanted to see go bye-bye in this movie they pretty much get theirs. I mean, and maybe that's a, maybe that's a, I'm not saying that everybody dies. Okay. I'm not saying that not spoiling anything. I'm just saying, if you want to see people get their comeuppance, you, you kind of get that satisfaction in this movie. And that doesn't happen hardly ever. You get, you know, certain characters will get theirs in the end. Right. But pretty much everybody, if you go, wow, I'd, I'd really like to see something happen to that person. Well, guess what? You're going to be very, very happy with what they do with Godzilla versus Kong. If you haven't watched it yet, definitely worth a watch. Very, very entertaining. Whether you're going in theaters, and yeah, it would look much better in the theater, if I'm being honest. I mean, obviously I want you to be safe, all that stuff, but if you can get to a theater to see it, it would definitely look better in a theater. If you got a big screen at home with the surround sound, obviously that would work really well, too, on HBO Max. It looks gorgeous there as well. But yeah, this is one of those big screen experiences I think you definitely want to have. That's going to do it for my review of... of That'll do it for my spoiler-ish review of Godzilla vs. Kong. Up next, going to jump into a... It's kind of a review slash interview. I'll give you my thoughts on Amazon's Invincible. We'll also hear from Zazzy Beats and Julian Jacobs about their characters as well. That's next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Luke Mitchell from Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And you are listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. One of the biggest premieres of the year, I think, was Amazon's Invincible when the first three episodes dropped last week. I think our jaws dropped as well. So you heard my interviews last week at Zazzy Beats and Jillian Jacobs coming up to talk about their roles on the show as well. I'll get to that in a second, but I wanted to give my thoughts on the first three episodes. Spoiler filled, by the way, for these first three. I'm not going to spoil episode four for you, though, since it just dropped today. I don't want to do that. But just my overall impression... Of the show, I think if you're a fan of the comics, you're happy because you got a a decent amount of the of what the comic story was in this first few episodes already. I think you saw that this was going to be true to the source material, so you're probably pretty happy about that. You also get, I mean, the great chemistry between J.K. Simmons and Stephen Young as Nolan and Mark Grayson, respectively. 
I think that it just plays off so well. But one thing I think is getting lost in the, all this superhero shuffle here is Sandra, Sandra O's performance as Debbie Grayson. You want to talk about a woman who will stand up to anybody, cape or no cape. I love that she does not back down from a soul. This is a tough woman and a confident woman. Even in her moments where she thinks her husband could be dying, she is headstrong, man. And I love what she brought to the table. And Sandra Oh did a fantastic job in this role. I also love, I mean, we've seen a lot of superhero origin stories. I think that they do a really good job with Mark Grayson becoming invincible here. I think it's really, really neat. And then you see his, you know, getting into the whole teen squad thing, I think was really, really neat. And and I, I think his chemistry with Adam Eve is really, really nice too. And I'll talk to Jillian Jacobs about that here in a second. But I really like that dynamic a lot. And, and you know, could there be some sort of a love triangle going on there between Mark and, and Eve and, and Amber? I don't know. But I love that you, you get the duality with Mark, though. You get the whole being a new superhero problem, but you also get the whole, you know, being a high school student problem. You definitely get Peter Parker vibes. You can't not get Peter Parker vibes from Mark Grayson. And that's not a bad thing either, by the way. It's not a clone. It's a, it's a totally different story because it's a totally different set of problems that Mark's going to have to deal with eventually because you know who his dad is. And I'll get to that in a second. But... I do like that you you get that relatability to him, and I think that's really, really cool. I do want to talk about the end of episode one, though, when you basically see Omni-Man lay waste to the Guardians of the Globe, and you want to talk about one of those scenes that you're going to remember, not just throughout this season, but I think for a while, that scene, that fight scene is, or massacre, or however you want to call it, it was just incredible. It was gra- it was gra- as graphic as it needed to be. It really painted a picture of who Omni-Man really is. And that makes him, you know, there's been some comparisons to Homelander on social media. And by the way, if you're not following Invincible HQ on Twitter, there's some gold coming from that account. But you could, uh, you know, Homelander doesn't, only hides who he is in the public eye. There's plenty of people that know how horrible of a person than a Homelander is. But when Omni-Man, when he does what he does, he just goes home to his family and wants pancakes and burgers and stuff and acts like nothing ever happened. So to me, that makes him the almost the bigger sociopath, right? That he can do what he did. And it, there's more than one Omni-Man slaughter in there for these first few episodes. He could do that and then come right back home and be fine. And, and and be fine in front of everyone, literally everyone else. And that to me is a next level of evil that I, that I don't know that that we've seen in, in, in a character in a while. So I, how this is going to unravel, I think is going to be really really interesting going forward. Again, I love the Teen Squad. I love that you know clearly robots into some shady stuff, and Zachary Quinto just brings it to that role, doesn't he? You know, he's he's got that kind of I'm a good guy, but I'm really not kind of vibes in the characters that he's played. So I think that that was a perfect casting choice to have him voice that character. And you've also got Rexplode drives me crazy. But I think that's the point. And, and of course, you know, what, what was going on with him and Adam Eve and Duplicate and stuff like that. That was an interesting little twist 
in the story too. So there's a lot of different varying storylines going on here. That makes this show really, really interesting, not just in a superhero aspect, but in general as well. Plus, Damien Darkblood, Clancy Brown, I love Clancy Brown anyway, but just how Damien Darkblood is looming over this whole thing as like the detective trying to get to the bottom of what's happening. I, I, I think that I could see more, way more of Damien Darkblood going forward. Just saying, hopefully we get that, but casting's been amazing. The performances are amazing, and I, I think this is going to be one of those must-see type of shows every Friday now that the episodes are being released weekly. So let's just dive into my conversation with Zazzy Beats and Jillian Jacobs, shall we? Actually, the first question I got to ask the ladies was, you know, they both had very distinct impressions of Mark Grayson when they first met him. So talk about those first impressions a little bit. This question is actually for the both of you because you both meet Mark in very, very different ways. So what would you say was your character's first impression of him? Well, I think for my character, they've been at the same school for probably a while, but maybe she didn't notice him before or they have a new dynamic now that he is coming into his superpower. So it's sort of like they're meeting for the first time, even though they've gone to the same school for a while. And I think that my first real impression of Mark is, um, I guess I'm like impressed in a way, like he sort of stands up for me when what, another kid is sort of like harassing me. And yeah, that draws me into, into sort of like talking to him and interacting with him. Um, so I suppose my first impression was impressed. The next question was, what's it like to play some strong female characters, you know, young women are going to get to look up to? I think that Amber is, you know, without being a superhero, I think is a really strong and confident character. And I think that's sort of important um, that Robert did with her is that she, you don't have to, you don't have to be a superhero, right, to like, to be a, a good influence in the world and to also have confidence and be sure of yourself, which you know, I think in some ways, you know, we look up to Wonder Woman and we look up to these characters, but it's also okay to not be that and to just be yourself, <laughs> which is what Amber is. So I think that that's an important element for, for me specifically. Yeah, I, I directed this uh, documentary uh, where I interviewed all these women who'd written and edited and illustrated comics and talked about also the impact of those characters on the readers. One of my favorite parts of that was uh, the character Ms. Marvel, Kamala Khan, which is getting her own Disney Plus series now. And so I hadn't really thought about that in terms of my own role on this show, but I, I have heard people talk about, you know, the impact that characters like these have on them. So yeah, you're making me think about that for the first time. <laughs> Somebody asked this question of Stephen Yeun last week when I when I aired the interview. I thought it was really important to get the perspective from the ladies as well. So someone asked Jillian and Zazie, you know, what was it like being a teenager again and, and talk about how that experience is a bit different for a teenage girl than a teenage boy? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I did think a little bit about that. And I think that sort of we've gotten a lot of questions today on like how we changed our voice for this. And, you know, I, I didn't really, but I did think about like, I hope I sound like a teenager. And like, you know, it's interesting how, I mean, it's been like a decade since I was a teenager. And I, I feel it's interesting how so quickly you can kind of lose touch with what that is and what that means. And, um, you know, to me, I think that was actually something for Amber, I wanted, she is very confident and strong as I was just talking about, but I wanted to make sure she, I tried to also make sure she had some like vulnerability as well. And that, that she's also 
still figuring it out. Yeah, I, I think it's a really special time, honestly. Um, my brother is 14 and I watching him sort of transition has been into adulthood has been really special. And I think it's a really yeah tender age. And I think we often are like teenagers are bad and mean and really they're not. They're just, I think a lot of them are just confused and are actually quite wonderful people. Those two ladies, one of the main reasons you should be watching Invincible every Friday on Amazon Prime Video because Adam Eve, one of my favorite characters on the show for sure, and Amber's just got some fire about her that I really, really dig as well. Plus, I mean, I mean, her and Mark going on their first date in episode four, so that's something to look forward to right there. So hopefully you're sticking around for Invincible on Amazon. This week, the Down and Nerdy podcast is brought to you by Realm, formerly Serial Box, and you know they are going to be bringing to you some audio entertainment that is original fiction podcast and audiobook series, including official continuations of popular franchises like, guess what, Orphan Black. That's right, Orphan Black, the next chapter, available now wherever you get your podcast, and Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany going to be reprising her role in narrating this thing as well. So rather than me, go ahead and telling you about it. Here's the trailer for Orphan Black, the next chapter from Realm. Vivi Valdez popped a gummy bear into her mouth as she settled in for her fourth evening of low-key surveillance. She had planted a bug in the office of Dr. Nathaniel Sturgis, director of research, and gotten the hell out. Believe me, Dr. Niehaus, nothing spurs scientific advancement like a clear and present threat. Vivi passed quietly behind her, glancing up for a glimpse of Niehaus's profile. What she saw startled her so much that she misstepped. Her eyes like Vivi's, if Vivi wore that much eyeliner. Her nose like Vivi's, if hers hadn't been broken that time in Bukhara. Her mouth the same, her ears the same. You're not Kasima Niehaus. You're one of them, aren't you? The blood likely belonged to Dr. Nathaniel Sturgis, director of research, the only person reportedly in the building at the time of the explosion. Well, Sturgis is dead, Kasima said. And also, they think I did it, so I'm under arrest. How many of them were there? She could buy that they were quadruplets, but that didn't explain why Vivi resembled them. Could they all be related somehow? Kasima, if they arrest you for the attack, I'll only be able to prove I'm not an international spy by revealing that I'm a clone. What I want is to free my wife, Delphine Hist, your sister, your own flesh and blood. You have to understand, people don't feel safe. If there are human clones running around in secret, what else have scientists done to our food, our water? And are these human photocopies breeding with natural, normal people? We won't rest until the government and authorities have heard us and taken the appropriate steps toward making sure these women aren't a threat. Blood will be spilled. We are under attack. It's not a secret anymore. We don't know who did it or what will happen next. Tell me you're safe and I'll leave you alone. Please. Realm presents Orphan Black, the next chapter. Starring Tatiana Maslany. If you like what you hear, please follow and share this podcast with your friends. Realm is your portal to another world. Listen away.
And that continuation said eight years after Project Lita was destroyed for good. Oh, but all is not well. And that is where the story really gets kicked off. So make sure you're listening to Orphan Black, the next chapter from Realm, wherever you get your podcasts available right now. That's going to do it for my review and chat with Zazie Beats and Jillian Jacobs from Invincible. Up next, we're going to have another conversation, this time with author and screenwriter Patrick Nass. Going to talk about Chaos Walking from Lionsgate. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hey guys, this is Dexter Darden from the Maze Runner series, and you're listening to Down and Nerdy Podcast. You'll know this guy from his many, many works, especially The Knife of Letting of Never Letting Go, that trilogy. And by the way, the movie adaptation of Chaos Walking, which is going to be coming to video on demand. It's in theaters now as well. Such a pleasure to talk to this guy. It's Patrick Ness. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm all right. It's a sunny, sunny morning in Los Angeles. So, you know, I'll take it. It's a good start. Hard to argue with that. Now, Chaos Walking was the, the film adaptation was first announced in 2011. So obviously this was a long, long process for you. So what was it like to see this adaptation finally come to the screen this year? <laughs> uh, at the end of a long wait yeah i mean there's it takes what it takes sometimes you sure, know yeah. I, mean, uh, I i in the in the interim i had a i had a shorter experience with a monster call so i've had both i've had really quick really you know took a while but uh it just feels like i can finally finally give it to the fans of the book who have been very patient and they've asked me questions about it for years and to let them finally be able to see it. That's a bit of a relief. That's always good. Now, I want to take things back, actually, to the knife of let, never letting go for a moment, because I always thought the concept of the noise was very, very interesting. How did you actually come up with that idea? Because it's not just as simple as, oh, well, you can hear men's thoughts, which I really, really thought was, was really cool. And, and, how, and also talk about the effect that that would have on the men in your story. When I was writing it in sort of 2007, 2008, I, what I you know, been calling it is like, that's kind of when we were in our first real big social media golden age, you know, we were really entrenched in it. We Facebook and Twitter was starting and, you know, it's all, we, we were feeling really, really good about it. You know, we thought this is a way to connect. I can talk to my family. I can talk to my friends. I can meet my tribe around the world, all good stuff. But even then I thought that's all good, but it does feel a little loud. You know, the world mm -hmm. feels like it's gotten a bit louder where you are hearing someone's opinion, whether you want to hear it or not. And I thought, okay, well, that's interesting. So what if this kept growing? And what if the next step was that you had no choice but to share everything? And how awful that would be, particularly how awful that would be if you were young mm -hmm. and you needed the privacy to make your mistakes, to think the unthinkable so you don't say the unsayable. You know, we are, we are humans because we filter our thoughts. And uh, I thought, okay, that's, that's interesting. So I, I called it the noise just because the world felt loud to me. <laughs> And then I, you know, made this town where this germ, germ had affected people. That's what they're told at the beginning. I'm not giving anything away. And I, then I thought, okay, the thing that I've long believed is humans are not great at handling difference, just mere difference, handling it as different but equal. Because mm -hmm. we tend to either cast it as worse than us, so we can step on it, or better than us, so we need to tear it down. You know, just equal is not something we do very well. And so I thought, okay, so what if this difference, say, between men and women was made apparent in every every single interaction in a way that you could not ignore. How would people reckon with it? And uh, I thought, that feels really meaty. That feels like a real story there because there'd be people who would handle it well, but there would be people who would handle it in the worst way possible. Um, so that's where, the, that's where the ideas began. And I kind of think in the 10 or 12 years since I wrote it, the world has only gotten noisier. Oh, our, no doubt. Our, yeah, our uh, kind of unalloyed love of social media has become a little more 
measured. It's you know still great. I'm not I'm not trying to argue. Let's go back to the old mm. days where we write letters in pen and ink. I'm just saying let's ask the questions that are important uh, always. And we've seen how people can have learned to take social media and use it for malicious ends and nefarious ends and the spreads of spread of misinformation and the destruction of people and so on. So, and also, I don't pretend to be a prophet here, but in the last 10 years, we have seen pretty clearly how much we don't listen to women. And so that's actually, you know, I'm not pretending to be some, you know, um, like I said, some, some prophet here about that, but uh, uh, that just happened to come true. So it feels kind of more pertinent than ever, kind of accidentally. I'm not pretending to be a psychic, but just um, it's the stuff that worried me then. It still worries me now. Yeah, you're, 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 not, you're not wrong about that, Patrick. Yeah. There's no doubt about that for sure. I want to take it back to the film for a second because you actually aged Todd up a little bit in this story. So in your opinion, what do you feel like drew fans to Todd's character for so many years in your story? And what do you feel Tom Holland actually brought to the role? Well, to me, the the very greatest or the very best, the greatest is a word, cheap word that people throw around too much, but the very best YA and the very best sci-fi, I feel do the same thing. They invite you in. They ask who would you be in this story? You know, it's not just sit there passively. It's asking how would you participate in this fanciful idea or, you know, or, or in your youth. And so I hope that that's why people like Todd. I wanted to make him as relatable as possible. He's really, really flawed. And I wanted to make Viola the same way because so often girls in UIA stories only get to be heroic and fierce and that's great and that's powerful. It's not fully human. So I wanted her to be heroic and fierce, but also screw up and also make mistakes. And that is what I hope people um, respond to, to the characters in the books. And that I think is what people respond to in Tom and Daisy. Their kind of superstardom is an approachable superstardom. You can see yourself being Peter Parker's friend. That's the whole point of Peter Parker. And you can see yourself being Ray's friend. You know, she's, a, she's an approachable person. You think I could, I could know her. Uh, that combination with um, Todd and Viola's characters really I'm fine with that happy that's perfect it's exactly what I wanted I didn't mind the aging up in any way because the question of the book is an arbitrary age that makes you a man is meaningless mm -hmm. you right. know? and her purpose or point is to say you may not even be that age the the sons on this planet are different you know you, you might even be older so you get to decide what makes you a man a number does not so uh, so I'm I'm very very happy with that one of the things that actually strikes me about Viola, especially here in the in the film adaptation, is is it seems like there's a lot of people that are doing a lot for her at a at a very big cost. Too, what is it about her? Instantly meeting her in these moments that that, that just seems to make everybody around her want to help her so much. Is it an altruism type thing, like you should help your your fellow your fellow humans, or do you feel like it's something else? For Todd, it's about who he is. You know, he's very much in this brutal, brutal town that has made everybody numb. And in the book, you know, there's a, there's a line where the mayor says, you know, you can still feel. In this world where everyone has numbed themselves, you can still feel. And Violet finally gives him a conduit for that. He's, she is not just the first woman he's ever seen. She is the revelation of the lie that he's been told. And so I think it it's, speaks most to Todd's character. He has the chance to be decent. And not all of us would take it, but he does. And uh, so that, I think, is where the hope for this world comes from. Because, you know, Todd and Viola might be the first people to work out this real problem that this planet has. So I think it's, I think it's, I'm, try, I'm just trying to speak to the character of Todd and hopefully you, we can see ourselves in him, if that makes sense. No, no doubt. No doubt about it. I totally agree with that. Now, whether you're talking about the novel or the film, quite frankly, I can't decide who I dislike more. Aaron 
or the mayor. I think that, well, I, I lean one way because of something very specific that happens in both stories that I will not tell you. I, I, I want to warn you, but I can't. So um, how did you go about balancing the many threats in your story, whether it be from the, from the book or from the movie itself? They are slightly different kinds of monsters. Aaron is to me the danger of certainty. You know, it's not that he's religious, it's that he is unquestioning. And that is the terrifying thing. You cannot reason with him. And uh, that's why clowns are so scary, because their faces don't change. You Gosh, know? I never thought about it that way. I was never scared of clowns, being... now I'm gonna be. <laughs> yeah, I'm terrified of clowns. But their faces don't change. You cannot reason with a clown. There's no mercy there. And so that to me is kind of the, the he's, you know, he's, a, he's a, a raging fireball. The mayor is a different kind of, uh, of evil, I think. You know, I tried to make him, he doesn't believe he's evil. That to me is interesting. You know, he just has very firm opinions about how the world should be and his place in it. He is almost attractive in that, in that he has a different kind of certainty, you know, in that belief in himself and uh, calm, rarely loses his temper, seems reasonable. And that is a, that's a scary thing in a, in a leader. Yeah, the smiling tyrant is terrifying. So I just tried to give them different, different flavors because we, we know both of these people in real life and in, you know, in leadership roles. So um, watch out for certainty. It's the thing that will thing that'll kill you in the end. No doubt about that. Talking to Patrick Ness, who, of course, is the author of The Knife of Never Letting Go. And, of course, one of the screenwriters on, on Chaos Walking because he would absolutely be, which is coming to video on demand, by the way. You can rent it starting April 2nd, and it's still in theaters as well. Now, Patrick... Again, I don't want to spoil really spoil anything here, but in, in so many sci-fi stories, the monsters often take center stage. But what but with the spackle, it was a little bit different in your story because I don't I don't feel like you really made it about them when you easily could have. What made what made you decide to do that? The they started with the question about for just almost accidentally, I have read a lot of Australian literature, and uh, it just started because I liked an Australian author called Peter Carey. Then I ended up being asked to review a lot of Australian literature. And a lot of Australian literature is colonial literature. It's about, you know, and the founding of Australia and then the whole civilization of Australia that was before the so-called founding of Australia. And as an American too, particularly as an American in the West, I grew up in Hawaii and in Washington state where Hawaii has is one third native Hawaiian. And uh, my homestead of Washington has big reservations and, and Indian tribes, all the towns are named after Native American tribes. And I just thought, okay, if we colonized another planet, would we make the same mistakes? Would we do the same things over and over again? And I'm afraid we probably would. And so it was trying to really take the idea of what is the alien? And Viola even says, uh, you know, she says, well, but we're the aliens here. We're the aliens. It's our planet, you know? And, uh, and I just wanted to ask that question from the point of view of the colonialist, you know, we have really, he's our hero, quote unquote, and he's the guy that we think is good and think is going to save us and save this planet, but he doesn't treat the natives particularly well. And so uh, that question is a thorny one that infects Australian and American history. So I really just wanted it to be there. And in later books, the speckle do come much more centrally to the book, but, you know, we start in this place after after the war has been terrible and the invaders have really scattered the native population nearby. And so I, I wanted to slowly bring in the idea of um, you think this is your home, but it was somebody else's home first and you had to take it from them. So what, what, what does that mean for you and who, who does that mean for who you are? It's just an interesting question to me for countries that have been based on colonization and America and Australia just being the two, the two biggest ones, you know, so. Definitely. That's, that's some amazing insight. I never, I never would have known that. That's really, really cool. I, and 
you know, you say stuff like that and, and you've got something that this is your baby essentially, right? So then you take it from the page to the screen and you have to work with other people to essentially rewrite your baby in a certain sense. So what was it like working with this team, with this team of screenwriters and, and the director that you had for this in, in putting this together? Was there anything during the process where you go, okay, from the book, we, we have to stay absolutely true to this. There's no, this is a deal breaker for me. Well, I mean, my first, the first sort of principle that I try to work on is that the book remains, you know, I'm not, I'm not a rewriting the baby. I'm making a new baby. Right. And uh, and the word that I've always used is remix. I am remixing the book, you know, and the book stays. And this is a remix of the book. The other principle is, uh, I think it's John Le Carre. He said, just take the check and buy a new kitchen and let it go. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, okay, you know, he's not wrong. But, you know, since I'm a screenwriter on it as well, and as a screenwriter on, I wrote, I wrote a Monster Calls as a movie as well. I view it as essentially a movie is not a novel. It's a short story at most. And so what a creative challenge to retell what you've done in a different form, in a completely different format in a much more limited time frame. And I think if you look at it as a creative challenge, well, that's where creativity comes from. Limitations spur creativity. And so I really try to look at it as that. And uh, as you say, movies are collaborative, which books are just not. Those both come with their pluses and their minuses. But like, I remember on a Monster Calls, you know, I'd already written the book on Monster Calls and it was based on the idea of another author who passed away. And then we brought in a, an illustrator. And so already that book felt like three people. And when the movie came, I felt like, okay, I'm bringing the best that I've got. I'm bringing the things that I really believe in. And then here's a director who's going to bring stuff that I don't know how to do. And he's going to bring his best stuff. Mm-hmm. And hopefully together we can make something even bigger than, than either of us. And like in a monster calls those these animated sequences. I'm not an animator, but wow, what they did. Mm-hmm. So that's that's really how I tried to approach it with this. I did have a few things. There are only a very few things in my contract, my option contract, which were that you can't change. <laughs> and one was actually changed. One was the book has two moons, and he said, "Well, can it be two suns?" I'm like, "Yeah, all right." Uh, okay, so that's uh, not too bad, I guess. That's not too bad because mm-hmm. these weren't and these weren't. I didn't want to do those things to be stumbling blocks. I right. really just wanted those to be things that if a filmmaker said, oh yeah, I'm not going to change those, then you know you're talking to someone who I feel like gets it. So one of them was the fate of a certain character, which I will not give away, but it's what you alluded to earlier, because I thought that would be the first thing Hollywood changed. Mostly it was just to try to see, try to get somebody who would really feel like they, they, they understood the spirit of the book. And once that's done, then you just let, it, let people bring their A game. The book is not disappearing. It's like, I've, I've used this example a lot because I really believe it's true. All that complaining about the Melissa McCarthy Ghostbusters, all that endless complaining about, oh, we're just going to tar the memory and tarnish and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, if a movie is going to erase another movie, did you not see Ghostbusters too? <laughs> you know, Ghostbusters is still fine. We can also have this other thing. Yep. It's fine. So I, I'm really, I'm pretty sanguine about that. It's, uh, yeah, I'm okay. Patrick, really quickly before I let you go, obviously fans know this is a trilogy. There's more story to tell from the books and things like that. So what are your hopes for continuing this story either on the screen or possibly, you know, on the page and on some other format? Ooh, page, probably not. Probably not. I like trilogies that end. I don't like trilogies that just sort of suddenly become. Okay, quadruple. had to get that out of the way. Okay. Yeah, that's a terrible thing. Um, but I, you know, I'm always open to further storytelling. There's so many ways to tell stories now. It is the golden age of television, for example. I mean, it is amazing what you can do on television now. And uh, yeah, I am always open. Never say never. 
because then you're just cutting yourself off to opportunity. I'm not saying I wouldn't want to see more live action, but I, but I'm thinking like if if this was an anime, that could be <laughs> that could look crazy good, especially with with what they're doing with with anime now. I'm that that to me could look really cool. So yeah. I'm I'm just saying. I know. I same here. I think it could look really cool on the stage. Oh yeah, yeah. All kinds of things you could do. So I'm I'm always open. I'm always I want to learn stuff and I want to learn new ways of telling stories. So I am always open. Come well, talk to me, creators. <laughs> there you go. Well, if you haven't yet, make sure you're starting with Chaos Walking, which is still in theaters now. Should theaters be open where you are? Also on video on demand, it's going to start becoming available to rent on April the April the second. Won't be too long after that until you can own it, and then you can just watch it as many times as you like. It's author extraordinaire Patrick Ness of Chaos Walking from Lionsgate Pictures. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. So whether you're a fan of the book series or not, or if you maybe just love Tom Holland and or Daisy Ridley, I think you really enjoy them. And if you see them in Chaos Walking, which is now available to rent on video on demand, still available in theaters. And yeah, you should be able to own it soon as well. Once again, thanks to Patrick Ness for joining me this week. Up next, it's time to talk about the final season premiere of Supergirl. We'll do that next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Hi, this is Jason Hale with Supergirl. Uh, you're listening to the Down and Podcast. Tuesday night is the start to a final goodbye for an amazing series that's been on the CW. Supergirl began its final season premiere, although, I mean, if we're really talking about it, this is the part of the end of last season as well. Of course, all the shows had to be halted because of, of COVID last year. So this is almost a continuation of the previous season of Supergirl where Lex Luthor is still wreaking havoc and Leviathan is is maybe gone, but not necessarily gone. I, but, I mean, going to talk spoilers here on this because the episode's been out for long enough now that I think we could talk spoilers. And that now Lex Luthor essentially has the godlike powers of Leviathan. And we get to see one of the final members of Leviathan get dealt with by Team Supergirl quite frankly, and, and Brainy is a big reason for that. And yeah, guess what? Brainy lives, too, which is really, really good. I, I was I was kind of worried about that. I, I like Brainy's character. I didn't want to see him go. I thought we might see him go. We don't. He even gets to patch things up with Dreamer, which I thought was really, really neat. There was a real redemption story for Brainy in this episode. I'm really glad that they decided to focus on that a little bit more. So it wasn't just about Kara, it was, and it wasn't just about Lena, it wasn't just about Lex. Brainy and, and Dreamer actually got a nice little segment of this episode as well. And Alex actually gets a big emotional moment in this episode too with her sister, who it seems like Kara's going to sacrifice herself to Lex to basically save half the world's population. And she almost does, but you, you can't, obviously you knew that, you know, we're, we're going to lose Kara this season. That wouldn't make any sense. So... You, that's where we kind of get into that gray area of, you know, it's hard to get too too much into the space of, okay, well, this could be it for Carr because, you know, it's really not going to be because they've still got one more season to go and you're not going to do a Supergirl entire season without Supergirl. So that kind of takes away from it a little bit. But when you're watching John Cryer do his thing as Lex Luthor, you kind of forget about everything else, right? I mean, I, just, I keep going back to how amazing he is as Lex Luthor. And it's a casting I don't think any of us would have pegged. And when you heard it, you know, when we first heard about it, we didn't doubt it, right, necessarily. But it was like, huh, never would have picked John Cryer to play Lex Luthor. And it's worked out so 
so well. I mean, that the, him dancing to the Queen song while he's firing off all these different weapons was amazing. That was an incredible, incredible Lex Luthor scene. But again, you also get back to that true Lex Luthor nature of his arrogance getting the best of him, right? Where he's thinking he is unstoppable. And his mother, his own mother even points it out in the episodes. Like, you know, your obsession with these Kryptonians is going to get you beat, essentially, is what she says. And, and that's kind of the crux of Lex Luthor, isn't it? It is that obsession that ends up getting a beat because he kind of had everything going his way. Right. With everything that was going on with Obsidian, he's, he's got his satellites up there. He's got these godlike powers now. Everything was coming up Lex Luthor. And because Kara basically suckered him in to this deal of, you know, sacrificing herself for the greater good sort of thing. It, it that was pretty much his downfall in a way. And and Lena ends up getting her redemption slash revenge in the end, too. Right. Because not only does she help. Team Supergirl kind of right the ship. She also erases the memories of everybody who knows that Kara is Supergirl and everything that happened with with Lex. So, I mean, hey, that works out. And plus, everybody hates Lex again, which is also a good thing. Right. But it just seemed like there was a lot of there were a lot of good vibes in this episode, quite frankly, in, in an episode that was kind of heavy at times. There was definitely a lot of good vibes, and and I love the 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 dynamic between Jean and Magan. I think that that's always really really good. I think that we I hope they explore that more coming up this season because I think think that's really neat. But also that connection that Jean and and Alex have, I think, is going to be really really important because the biggest spoiler of the episode is what happens to the car. Right, she's projected into the Phantom Zone, and they have no idea where she is and how to get her out. Although Jean references somebody that has done a rescue in the Phantom Zone before and that might be able to get her out. I'm, you know, I hold out hope for Adam Strange here that the Krypton dream is not dead and Sean Sipos might come in as Adam Strange to help them with this. Call me crazy. I just want to put it out there in case it happens. You'll know you heard it here. I just think that that would be a really, really neat thing that they could do. And certainly he could help with the Phantom Zone rescue, right? At least I would think so. Probably not going to be that, but you never know, right? And and hey, Krypton's not on the air anymore. There's, this is to be this would be a really neat way to tie that in the final season of Supergirl. I just think that that would be a really really cool thing that they could do. Not gonna lie though, there were some slow moments in this episode. Uh, the Andrea Rojas stuff, I kind of could have done without. The, you kind of throw William in there at the end, and you know, of course, he's bummed because they make an excuse of why Carr is gone, and he, you know. He kind of thought that they had something special sort of thing. And, and now it seems like she just blew him off. And, you, you know, I don't know that they needed to throw that relationship aspect. Well, I mean, you know, I wasn't a fan of the whole Carr William thing anyway. But I don't need I don't know. I don't know that they needed to throw that in there. So there was some good finality in this episode, but it did drag on a little bit more than I think that it probably could or should have. But the emotional moments definitely hit when they needed to seeing Kara and Lena back on the same page and repairing that relationship before Kara was sent to the Phantom Zone, I thought was really, really important. And just Lena being redeemed in general, I thought was really, really neat. It was it was interesting last season to kind of see her play the villain and, and kind of go astray a little bit. But at the same time, they built up that relationship between the Danvers sisters and Lena so much and just Lena being a part of that group that it was sad to see that go. And now I'm glad to see that they're going to bring that back 
coming up this season, or at least it seems like they're going to anyway. But but the, now the season turns to, the focus turns to, where is Kara in the Phantom Zone? How do they get her out? And how is she dealing with what's clearly coming at her in the Phantom Zone, right? And then I'm sure there's a lot of problems that she's going to be facing in there. So, yes, I am, I'm still excited for this final season of Supergirl because, I, again, you, you throw part of what happened last season at the beginning of this season. You don't really get a true premiere. Like, even The Flash didn't get a true premiere, but even though they had a much more climactic moment, I thought, in their premiere this season, based on what happened last season, you still didn't really get a true premiere from Supergirl. So I, when, once they finally get what would be their final season going, I'm interested to see how much momentum they can pick up with that. That's going to do it for my spoiler-filled review of the Supergirl final season premiere. Up next, speaking of Supergirl, let's dive into some comics, right? Going to get into some shadowy-type stuff. Up next on the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is Joe Henderson, showrunner for Lucifer, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Whether on the page or on the screen, hey, the point is you're reading comics, and no matter what you're reading on, it's time for what we're reading, and I'm not going to lie, there's going to be a little bit of a shadowy theme to what we're reading this week. Totally not on purpose either, by the way. I'm going to start things off with a new story from Image Comics, and that is Shadecraft, number one, from Lucifer showrunner Joe Henderson, writing this one once again, teaming up with Lee Garbett on the art, getting a little bit of help with colors when from Antonio Fibella, and Simon Bolin doing the letters here. And we are going to have some spoilers in this review because the book's been out for a little bit. Not going to spoil a ton for you here, though. We meet Zadie, who's kind of a typical teenager with typical teenage problems. You know, she kissed her best friend, and it wasn't necessarily reciprocated. She's not the most popular girl in school. You know, you've maybe had some of those problems in your life before. So when she kind of sees these shadows that are trying to harm her, it's not exactly an easy story to believe and sell to your family and friends, right? And then she's got her brother who something very terrible happened to him. He was Mr. Popularity and now he's kind of not anymore because he's, this is the biggest spoiler I'm going to give you. Her brother is in a coma. So she kind of thinks she's going crazy. And if you thought you were seeing Chad destroy to attack you, you probably would too. And, and everyone else obviously thinks she's crazy, but there might be more to these shadows then she knows. And that is basically the crux of the story. And there is a huge, huge reveal at the end of this book that I, I was enjoying the characters anyway. But once I got this reveal at the end, my eyebrows perked up and I went, well, this changes everything. Matter of fact, this book feels very true to life with a very likable main character. Zadie is very, very likable instantly. And I got to say, Joe Henderson really dives right in to this story and doesn't waste time with a lot of backstory, which you don't always need to do. There's not a whole lot of backstory, not a whole lot of setup. He just kind of jumps right in. And what we need to know is revealed throughout the issue while never letting go of that hook. The hook is always there. And that is one of the things that you don't get enough in comics, I don't think, is that the hook isn't just there for a page or two continues throughout this whole first issue as if to say this is always going to be part of our story and I like knowing that in the first issue because I'm like okay once I keep going with the story I know this will always be a part of it and this is never going to be missing so I love that about this and it looks like teaming up with Lee Garbett again was the right choice because I mean 
they'll rule the shadows instead of the skies this time, right? But at the same time, the way that the shadows are presented feels really fresh because we've obviously seen stories about shadow play and, and shadow figures, stuff like that before. But there, this just feels like much more of a fresh take. The varying sizes, too, I think really adds to some of the tense moments as well that really, really ramp things up for me. And, and I got to say, it's almost like how a musical score can drive emotions in TV and movies. That's how much the art meant to this book as well. So, yeah, definitely more of this, please. Make sure you're getting your hands on Shadecraft from Image Comics. Just put it in your pull box because this is just one of those books, quite frankly. Going to give you a little bit of an early review now. The latest Shadow Man number one from Valiant Comics, which is not going to be out until April the 28th, but got a chance to read it early. Thanks to the folks at Valiant. Cullen Bunn writing this one, and if Cullen's writing it, I'm on board already. John Davis Hunt doing the art here. Jordy Belair on the colors and Clayton Cowles on the letters. You want to talk about a superstar creative team, this book has it. Okay, so that should get your attention right away. I'm gonna, I'm not going to spoil any of this one. Not going to do that to you. But Shadow Man is kind of doing his thing, you know, protecting the living world from the evils of the dead side. If you know the character, you know that already. Now, a mysterious message and a hint from a familiar face kind of leads him to believe something else might be going on that needs his attention. Now, sometimes that means protecting people from themselves. And, you know, you got to figure out just how bad is this thing going to be, really. Now, this is definitely only the beginning of this story because this is a bit of a less serious Shadow Man, too, which I thought was very, very unique. I don't really feel like I've seen Shadow Man presented in this way before. And I think Cullen does a great job at making this character feel a little bit fresh, even though I've, I was already a fan of the character anyway. And I, I wasn't used to it. And I thought that that was really, really cool that, you know, Colin kind of gives him a little bit more personality. And there's not a whole lot of like, it was like, you know, sometimes, you know, to make a wrestling reference, you get a lot of Shadow Man being kind of like The Undertaker, you know, classic Undertaker. And then you give him a little bit more personality than than that. And, you know, you get more of a later in his career Undertaker that had a little bit more personality as well. So I kind of like how they did that. But he also doesn't lose his edge, which is really, really good. The pacing does seem a bit rushed at times, though. I'm not going to lie. And it's it's but it's not enough to derail the story. There's just enough intrigue, too, at the end for me to want to stick around. And, and John Davis Hunt actually gives us some really good character designs, too. And definitely sold the book's more disturbing moments. And boy, well, you, you know, that that's just how Cullen rolls, right? He's going to he's going to give you something really creepy and weird to focus on in the story. And that's always a good thing. It's one of the things I love about this about his books. But I mean, I just if I know Cullen Bunn and I and I think I do after all these years, this is just a sampler platter of what's going to be coming up in this book. And he typically doesn't really reveal a ton in the first issue anyway. So I'm betting that issue two is when things are really going to get kicked into high gear. So I've very much got my eye on what's going to be happening with Shadow Man from Valiant. But yeah, definitely pick up this first issue on April the 28th. Let me know what you think of it because I, I've got a good feeling about this one. That's going to do for what we're reading up next. Yeah, even though we had an April Fool's Day week, there was still some good nerd news to talk about. So we'll do that. I'm James Witham, and this is the Down and Nerdy Podcast. This is comic book writer Tom King, and you're listening to the Down and Nerdy Podcast. 
When April Fools turns out to be no joke, it's time for nerd news. Really quickly, I gotta say how much I get frustrated on April Fools Day. You basically can't trust anything from any news or entertainment website or anything like that because everybody feels like they've got to get their joke in. And that's why I don't post a whole lot on April Fool's Day on any of our social media pages because I feel like, hey, you're not going to believe it anyway. But I, I double, triple, and quadruple checked because this news actually did break on April Fool's Day. Didn't believe it at first, and then when you see the official statement from Warner Brothers, you're like, okay. And it was the Hollywood Reporter that broke the story that the New Gods movie and the movie The Trench, which is based in the Aquaman universe, will not be moving forward from Warner Brothers. Both both movies basically shelved, but not dead completely. They, they leave the door open to revisit this at some point in the future, but right now not moving forward. Of course, it was Ava DuVernay and Tom King that were working on New Gods, James Wan and company, working on The Trench. Now, New Gods has been in the works since 2018, and they've been writing the script since then. And, and you know, when something's been in the works since 2018 and you haven't really heard any casting news or, you know, directors attached and such, you, you tend to wonder what's going on. And I'm not saying that the script wasn't good. I'm sure the script was fantastic. I mean, look at who was working on it. I have no doubt that the script was good. Maybe this, Maybe Warner Brothers just decided this wasn't worth... The risk, And I mean, as much as I would love to see Jack Kirby's glory on the screen, it's still a risk for Warner Brothers to do a New Gods movie, just as much as it's a risk for for Marvel to do an Eternals movie, quite frankly. So it's not like this comes without risk. I mean, of course, you know, as comic book fans, we want to see this. But, you know, I said I've said it a million times. Here's a million and one. The general public has to want this. And I think they could have. I think it you could have gotten real Game of Thrones vibes from this. But. They've decided not to move forward with it. And and could this be to get some distance from Zack Snyder's Justice League and, and the, the the dark side that we saw there? I mean, maybe. I mean, how much would dark side be a huge focus of the New Gods movie? I know he'd be a focus, but the focus? I doubt it. And it's not like you couldn't have a successful New Gods movie even after seeing Zack Snyder's Justice League. So I, I don't really think the two are probably connected. I don't know. I've seen that float around on social media. A little bit. So, yeah, I'm disappointed that we're not getting this, but I still think that this is something we could get in the future. DC's got so many balls in the air right now anyway that I'm not sure. I mean, it's hard to keep track at this point. So, I mean, this is a wait-and-see type approach, but when it comes to the trench, I knew the second they announced this movie that it was never going to happen. Obviously, you're basing a whole movie, and I know it was going to be a horror vibe and it was going to be different, and but you're basing a whole movie on some creepy characters that you saw in the Aquaman movie for what? Not even 10 minutes, right? I mean, yeah, it was it was a, it was a neat scene. It was pretty cool. You know, they were menacing, but a whole movie? Come on. Like seriously, come on. I'm not saying you shouldn't ever use the trench again. I think that revisiting that at some point in an Aquaman movie isn't a bad idea, but basing the whole, a whole movie around it? Come on, give me a break. That that, that was never going to work. I'm sorry. But here's something that I think is going to work big time, and that is The Suicide Squad from James Gunn coming out August the 6th in theaters and on HBO Max, and I'm still thinking about that trailer. I know it's like over a week old now, but I, I haven't had a chance to talk about it on the show yet, and I have to talk about it because it was freaking amazing. It just looked so fun, so off the wall. All of the character designs look good. It's freaking Sylvester Stallone is going to be the voice of King Shark. 
How do you argue with that? Love the chemistry between John Cena and Idris Elba in those scenes when you've got Bloodsport and, and Peacemaker on screen together. It just works for me. The Harley stuff really worked, That especially that opening part of the trailer where you see Rick Flagg and, and Harley comes out. They're supposed to be saving Harley, and she's already saved herself. And she's like, well, you know, I could go back in there, and you guys could could save. No, I love that. Right off the bat, that tells you how much fun this movie is going to be. You knew that with James Gunn anyway, but this just feels like a no-holds-barred type of movie, and I love them for that. And, and the very fact that the first trailer we got was a Red Band trailer. Again, it's just... That told me all I needed to know right there. And and the jokes landed in the trailer. I know that won't be the only jokes that are going to be coming. And it even provided some you know levity to a character like Amanda Waller, which I thought was really, really neat. And then you see Starro show up at the end of the trailer. And I freaking lost it. Lost it. I never really thought we'd ever see Starro in a movie. I thought of maybe... In the Arrowverse at some point, never in a movie. So I'm really excited to see where this one is going to go. Speaking of the Arrowverse, though, Bart Allen is officially coming to The Flash. I believe it was TV Line that first broke this story that Jordan Fisher is going to be playing the role coming up in this upcoming season, in this current season of The Flash. But you know, there's always going to be something that fans get upset about, right? Well, here's the thing that they're upset about now it's that. Fisher is going to be playing Bart Allen, the son of Barry and Iris, not the grandson of Barry and Iris. And seriously, are we not over this? Seriously, I mean, really, are we not over this? This is not the first time that the Arrowverse has changed something for TV. It's not the first time that one of these shows has changed changed something for television. What difference does it make? And I realized you could go, whoa, then what are we even reading comics for? Oh, okay. That, that's one argument. But the other argument is, do you want to see every little thing that you've read on the page on the screen? Because if you do, there's motion comics for that, right? Change things up a, a bit. Make it interesting. Make me try to figure out what's going to happen instead of saying, oh, yeah, that was from Flash number whatever issue. Oh, that's cool to see that. No. That's not what I want. And if that's what you want, that's fine. But I don't think that's what a lot of people want. I don't want the comic on the screen. Do I want it to be completely, absolutely 100% different? No, not necessarily. And there's certain things that still need to be honored and certain things that still need to be done and maybe even seen. But changing this to fit their story, I don't think is a big deal. Plus, you're going to, once you get to grandchildren, Barry and Iris haven't even had one child yet. It's a little early to be getting to grandchildren. You're comparing a show that's run for eight seasons on the CW to a comic series and a comic character that's been around for decades and has decades of history. They haven't built up decades of history on the Flash TV series yet. They're not going to. This is not going to be The Simpsons. We're not going to get to 30-plus seasons of The Flash as much as I would like to see that. So making Bart Allen, slash Impulse, by the way, Barry and Iris' son is a smart way to get Bart on the show, and you needed to get Bart on the show, in my opinion, at some point. This is a way for them to do that. So I don't understand why this is such a big, fat, hairy deal 
I think you just do this. You have fun with it, and you see where it goes. And if the character doesn't work, you can get rid of him pretty easily, right? Because clearly this is a time travel type situation. You can get rid of him pretty easily. I, I don't think that that's going to be a very difficult thing for them to do. But I, th I think it's going to be fun. I believe that he's going to be premiering in the... He's going to be showing up in the 150th episode of The Flash, which is coming up later on this season. I think it's like episode, like, I don't know, 16-ish. If my math is right, you know, correct me. I'm sure you will on that. But, I, again, I don't understand why this is such a huge deal. You heard what I thought about Godzilla vs. Kong earlier in the show. Well, that director is going to be very busy once again with Warner Brothers. Deadline reporting that Adam Wingard is now the Helmer director of the Thundercats movie going forward. Yes, the Thundercats movie lives after all. And he's actually going to get a little bit of help rewriting the script from Simon Barrett as well. Here's the interesting part, though. The story says that this is now going to be a CG animation-style hybrid movie. And, I mean, part of you might go, aw, you know, that you might be disappointed by that. But at the same time, I think, of, I think about it, and I'm like, you know, that could be visually gorgeous, right? And, I mean, any live-action Thundercats movie would have had to have CG anyway, and you probably would have, well, I, I, I say you. There are fans that would have complained about that and how the CG looked because there's always a subsection of fans that complain about how the CG looks no matter how good it is. And sometimes it's not, but, you know, sometimes it is and you just can't please everybody. So it was going to be that anyway. And rather than spend this huge amount of money and a huge budget on Thundercats, you do it this way, you're still going to spend some money, but you're not going to spend nearly as much money. And, I mean, I think you could get a top-notch voice cast for this. I think that it could look really, really good. I think that we've seen that animated movies work on the big screen, not just for kids, but for adults. I think that that's, that's kind of something over the last several years that's really sunk, that's really sunk in. To the movie going public just because it's animated doesn't mean it's kiddie style you can make a good solid animated movie with a deep meaningful story for adults but also appeals to kids as well you can get that dual audience with an animated movie just like you can get that with a live action movie it's a movie okay it's if it's made a certain way it's made for everyone the format Almost doesn't matter at this point. Plus, th this animation styles looks so great now. It's not like you're cheapening anything. So I just think of how this could look on the big screen. You know, which I'm assuming we'll be getting there at some point. You know, certainly by the time that this movie hits hits the hits the air, where however it does, I think that this has got a real chance of looking amazing and as good a job as Adam Wingard did. With Godzilla vs. Kong, I can't wait to see what he does with Lion-O and Panthro and company. I, I And the cast, too early for me to think about who the cast could be, especially since this is animated. I'll have to see what kind of a direction that they take that. But I really, I'm really looking forward to Thundercats being on the big screen for the first time ever. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the Down and Nerdy Podcast. Again, thanks to my amazing guests this week, Zazie Beats and Jillian Jacobs. Make, hope, make sure, hopefully you're watching Invincible on Amazon Prime Video. Also, Patrick Ness, who is the author of The Knife of Never Letting Go, and, of course, Chaos Walking, the movie, which you can see still in theaters and now on demand. You can rent it on demand right now, as a matter of fact, 
if you haven't seen it yet, the Tom Holland and Daisy Ridley movie. Also, make sure you're checking out Realms Orphan Black, the next chapter, wherever you get your podcast. Super, super excited for what Realm has. They've got some great originals, too. We'll talk about that at some point down the line as well. If you want to keep up with everything that we've got going on, and it's a ton, got a big announcement coming up this coming week, down in nerdypodcast.com, also on social media, at down and nerdy 757 on Twitter and on Instagram, and facebook.com slash down and nerdy. Remember, you never have to apologize for being a nerd, so let your fan flag fly and be good to your fellow nerds.